Well, we are in Acts chapter 10, verse 1 to 23, very famous text. If you've read your Bible, you have come across this. The title for tonight's lesson is Two Hungry Prayers. Chapter 10 introduces a new era or new area, area of the dunamis, which is what? Power, yes, the Holy Spirit, dunamis, that's the Greek word, the power of the Spirit, um, which where we get the word dynamite from, right? So, we see in the, the verses that's coming across tonight, we see that the dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrates unexpectedly the Gentile world. Um, for, for God, it's not unexpected, but I think for the, for the, for the, the Jews and the Christians, it was unexpected. Remember in the beginning, the disciples saw the Romans as the enemy. The Jews saw the Romans as the enemy. That's what they expected because they said to Jesus, listen, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You're going to restore the kingdom of Israel back? You know, otherwise, you're going to take us, you're going to take um, the rulership of the, the Romans away from us now? And Jesus answers that in a way that I, I don't think they were, were hoping for. So, um, the Jews believed God is for them alone. God belongs to them. He's their God. And surely God would never be impressed with the oppressor. God cannot love the Romans. Um, he, he can't have the same covenant with them as He has with, with, with the Jews. Well, this whole idea is starting to flip on its head, as we'll see in the text tonight from chapter 10, um, actually going through the rest of the book of Acts. Now, we spoke last week about Simon the Tanner. Um, who was lying in the sun tanning the whole day. Now, he signifies, and I, I've been wondering, like, have you, have you, you know, sometimes I read the text and I wonder, well, Luke, you wrote, you decided what to put in and what not to put in, right, when you were writing this history. Why do you put in this cat? Why? Well, he's at Simon the Tanner's house. Why don't you say he was at some guy's house? Why does he have to put in who this guy was? I suspect that the reason why he did that, as, as I said last week, is because a tanner worked with dead animals, and most of the time he was rejected by, by the Jews because he's unclean. Remember, there are all kinds of regulations about touching animals. So the Jews avoided the tanners. And so in a sense, he was a little bit cast out. He couldn't just go into the temple and do the daily prayers there because he probably touched a dead animal today. His house was surrounded by stink and filthy animals, um, but it doesn't mean the guy was bad. And I think that's got something to do with the reason as to why Simon the the, the tanner is here. And I think it's beautiful that Luke tries to tell us, look, the Jews might have rejected a guy like Simon the tanner, but you know what? Peter is a great guy. Peter connects with him. Peter says, hey man, I'm going to overlook your uncleanliness and I'm going to connect with you. And we're going to see more of him um, uh, tonight as well. So Peter is in Joppa. Uh, just Peter is in Joppa over there at this point. Um, remember that um, Philip had gone from Azotus all the way to Caesarea. That's what we see in the text over there. And tonight we're going to see how um, from Joppa, Peter is called to Caesarea um, to go and preach there. But a few questions before we start. Does God hear the prayers of people who are not Christians? Come, theologian Steve. Does God hear the prayers of people who are not Christians? 
at which point, second question, at which point in our daily life are we more likely to hear God speak to us on the inside? In the morning when you wake up, at night when you go to sleep, lunchtime. At, in which posture does God, is God more likely to speak to us on the inside? Number three, is it possible that God accepts people we reject? And what should we do about it, if that's possible? I mean, do you guys think about that? Well, I reject this guy. I mean, the Jews were rejecting, but potentially, the text doesn't say so, but I think to some extent they were pushing Simon the Tanner to the side. Is that how God viewed him? Fourthly, is loving God and loving the church the same thing? And you might say, well, um, well, it depends on what you mean by church. Right. Okay. So let's get into the text. Just some questions to whet our appetite. This is the text for tonight. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. What I love about Luke, he's thorough. He records important details that he thinks is important. And that tells us this isn't just some made-up story. When he, when he compiles this material for Theophilus, he says, I want to give the proper details. Yes, it's Simon the Tanner, so you know which one it is. Okay? And as you'll see in the text tonight, Simon the Tanner that lives by the sea. So, I mean, those days they probably didn't have an address, okay, 274B Marine Drive. No, it was like Simon the Tanner that lives by the sea. Okay, but he gives those details, which gives legitimacy to the book of Acts, which is absolutely incredible. Now, he talks about this guy, Cornelius, and he gives details about his life. Well, he's a centurion. And he is of the Italian regiment. And apparently that means that he was in charge of about 100 soldiers. He was, I think, what, I don't know, you guys need to tell me. I, I, got, I know nothing about an army because South Africa has got an incredible army, right? Non-existent one. Never been to the army. But they say it's about the same as a captain. I don't know. Is it? I don't know. Anyways, but he's over 100 guys. So he's, he's quite a, a fairly important person. But he's of the Italian regiment. So I read up a little bit about that just to wrap my head around that. But this guy was a pure Roman. He's from Italy. If you are in the Italian regiment, it means that you were born in Italy. You're a purebred Roman. You can't just get into the Italian regiment as just some person from another country. No. So this, I think Luke is recording this to tell us, listen, here's a purebred Roman. Born in Italy, in charge of a hundred Italians. He's not a, nowhere close to a Jew. He's on the other side. He is on the team of the oppressor. That's who he is. Important, I think, for us to, to keep into our minds. Verse 2 says, This guy, Roman guy, born in Italy, who's oppressing the Jews, he and all his family were devout. And God-fearing, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Interesting. He and his family feared God. How do we know this? Well, Luke tells us, but there's two ways that you can know if somebody fears God. What do we see? He prayed and he gave to the poor. Interesting. Our relationship with God, ladies and gentlemen, is always cross-shaped. It must be cross-shaped, otherwise it's not real. What I mean by that is it's like this. Interesting that Jesus died on a cross, right? It has to be horizontal, the way that you love people. And it has to be vertical, the way that you connect with God and love God. 
That's what this guy has. He prays and he loves. He prays and he loves. You can't not have both of those. You have to have both of those. Otherwise, your religion is dead. You've got no idea who God is. Beautiful. Thank you for illustrating that to us, Luke. Yet, here's a question. Was he a Christian? No, he wasn't a Christian. Was he a Jew? No. Okay, it's a trick. That's a trick. I'm going to... Sorry, my brother. We're going to... But he's it's, it's not a purebred Jew. I'm going to tell you why. So, we know... He's not a Christian because the whole story is about him becoming one. Okay? We know that he was not a Jew because in chapter 11, verse 3, the text says, as Peter comes into Jerusalem and he, and he meets the apostles and he tells them, hey, dudes, I met this guy, Cornelius, and I went into his house and I baptized him. You know what they say to him? They say to him the following, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? So, I believe in a sense he was potentially, he's, he's sort of on the edge, but he wasn't circumcised. So he wasn't a purebred Jew. Okay. So what religion was he then? This guy's a Roman soldier. He prays to God. And he's God-fearing, the Holy Spirit says. Yet he's not a Jew or a Christian. So what is he then? Uh, in between nothing? I mean, how does, how does this work? So some say that he was a, what they call a proselyte at the gate. A proselyte at the gate was somebody who's not a Jew, but who would go to the gate and pray during the times of prayer and sort of had some connection with the God of, of the Jews. So as we see in the next verse, he prays at Jewish times. And we see later on in the text, as you'll see tonight, that he was well respected by the Jews. So there was a flavor. He heard about the Jewish God. Okay. Um, but I would say that in a sense he was praying to the unknown God of Acts chapter 17. He was praying to the creator God. And I don't think he was 100% sure about who that God was. My suspicion. But one thing is for sure. He did not worship any Roman gods. The absence of his paganism is evidence of his pure heart and his seeking of the truth. He was not caught up in the idolatry and the superstition of the Roman gods. He was seeking the God of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth. And I thought we could just read a verse together, two verses, if you've got your Bible with you in Romans chapter 1. Because I think this is a question that people often bring up, you know, how does... You know, how do we, how do we, what about the guy who never goes, never is, grows up in a country where there's a church? What about that guy? You know, what do they call it? The 1040 gap. There's a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, um, there's, there's a gap in the world where there's really no churches. What about those people? Can they pray to God, the same God we worship, or do they need a church to do that? You know what I'm saying? And then we've got verses like this. Look at, and, and what about the person, what about Tarzan, who flies with his plane and he crashes on an island and there's nobody there to tell him about Jesus. He lives his whole life, he dies alone with the baboons. Well, can he go to heaven? Well, that's unfair. He never had a preacher preach to him. What about that guy? You throw them this text. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For in case that's not clear, let me just explain that. Is that we know God exists based on what we see in creation. He's given evidence of Himself in the stuff around us. So even if you do end up on an island alone like Tarzan and nobody can tell you about God, you look up to the stars, you look at the creation around you, and you realize there must be something bigger than you. God has written His fingerprint in the natural world within which we live. And if you then realize that, and you pray to that God, I believe it's possible for God to hear you. Absolutely. And if you seek Him, as the text says, you will be found by Him. You'll make sure you get to know Him. Chapter 2 says something interesting as well. It says, verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and there's thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. In simple terms, what that verse tells us is not only that God has written His existence into creation, but that God has written His requirements on our hearts. If you are a human being, you know it's wrong to murder. That's why it's wrong to murder in uh, New Zealand and in Africa and in Asia as well. We all know it. It's written on our hearts. Which once again leaves people without excuse. If you know it's wrong, it's written in your heart, and you continue to do it, you know that you are violating the creator of heaven and earth's um, creation order. So, you don't need to be in a church or to speak to a Christian to know that there is a God. You don't need church, and you don't need Christianity to know that there's good and evil. This is one of the big atheist arguments. One of the biggest reasons why atheism cannot be true is because if atheism is consistent, you cannot say that anything is good or bad. You can't. Because on what basis? On what basis is something good or bad? There is no moral lawgiver. There is no moral law. So we can just do what we want if atheism is true. But atheist, every atheist knows there's good and evil. And therefore you have to acknowledge that there is an objective moral good. The question is not whether an atheist can be a good person or not. Of course an atheist can be a good person. A person who doesn't believe in God can do good things and do bad things. The question is, how can you even recognize that there's good or bad if you say that there's no God? So, definitely, you don't have to be in a church or in a religion to know what is good and bad. We all do because God wrote it on our hearts. So you can choose to reject Him. Sure you can. You can choose that, but then you do it to your own conscience and to your own detriment. Maybe, and the question then is this, why was Cornelius like not in a specific camp? Because I think we, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that Cornelius is somewhere in the middle between two religions. Okay? Maybe Cornelius wasn't ready to become a Jew because it was too complicated regarding his job. Think about it. You are a Roman soldier. You are supposed to suppress. You are supposed to control the Jews. And now you become one yourself. I think that's too complicated. I think it was really complicated. 
So he found himself in a difficult situation. This is what I think he found himself in. He wanted God. He wanted the Creator. But he didn't know how to do that in his predicament. I think that's what he was praying about. So he wanted God, but religion complicated it. If he wanted God, he would have to embrace the religion. And to embrace the Jewish religion is a little bit harder than just embracing Christianity in terms of practicalities. His dress code, his, um, his Sabbaths, now suddenly he can't work on a Sabbath. Imagine what his commander says in Rome. Hey, bud, sorry, I can't work Saturday. I've become a Jew. The people you told me to oppress, sorry, and I'm going to be out for two months. I've just been circumcised. I'm sorry, just get somebody else to take my place. It's pretty complicated to become a Jew. Much easier to become a Christian. So, so, so he, he, he's devoted. He speaks to God. He gives generously. God-fearing. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Mama Debbie, I feel, is your bum okay there on those steps there? Are you right? You can come forward if you want to. You're, you're good. Okay. All right. So Cornelius um, explains himself this scenario in chapter 10 verse 28. And he explains that he was actually busy praying. You see there when it says, one day at about three in the afternoon, he himself says he was busy praying when he received this vision. Now, who knows what happens at three o'clock in the afternoon? It's the time of prayer. It was the time of prayer. So what do we see here? He's adopted some form of religiosity. He's gone to the temple to pray. Or at least he prayed during those times. Maybe that was the only um, way of knowing God that he had seen around him. And so he prayed at three in the afternoon. And you know what's interesting for me? That when you go read the book of Daniel, and you go read what happened with Zechariah, it seems like every time an angel appears to something, it's, it's, it's like when they are praying. There's something unique. It's as if heaven sort of comes closer to you when you pray. It's like as if God just listens more to you when you, when you pray. That his, his, his proximity becomes less or more. The angel says something beautiful here to him. Did you read that? Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Can you imagine what that must feel like when an angel of heaven tells you that? I put it in my own words here. It's like God records remembers and have been thinking about the prayers and the gifts that you have given. Can you imagine? Wow. He did not make sacrifices, give over lamps, burn incense, tithe at the temple. That's not what God remembers. He didn't sing songs with a harp at the temple gates. No. He prayed 
and gave to the poor. That's what he did. That's what God remembers. That's what God records. That impressed God. So does God listen to the prayers of non-Christians? Well, it depends. Are they seeking Him? Of course He does. If you are seeking Him. Anybody who seeks God will always be heard by God. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how, what horrible things you've done. He will hear you. Simon the Tanner lives by the sea. Once again, we, we're back to the stinky guy. To make it a little bit worse, tanneries were apparently close to uh, margins of streams or large bodies of water so that it could carry away the filth of, of, of the things that you produce in your operation of cutting out livers and stuff. So, yeah, the guy's living by the sea. Thank you for the address, Luke. Let's go to verse uh, 9. About noon, now we're switching over, right? Everybody, everybody on the story here. So Cornelius had the vision. He sends guys over to where? To Joppa. He lives in Caesarea. Now we're going to switch over to Peter. Peter is also busy with something else. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry. And wanted something to eat. Duh. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. The title of this lesson is what? Two hungry prayers. We've already looked at the first hungry prayer. This is the second one. One is physical, one is spiritual. Cornelius prayed, I believe deeply, because he was hungry for God. Because I believe when you're hungry for God, then he will fill you. Jesus said that. Matthew 5 verse 6 says, Blessed are those who... Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You pray a hungry spiritual prayer. You know one of the reasons why we, we, we just don't ha be filled, we don't get ourselves be filled by God? It's because that we don't pray in hunger. God knows, hey, you're not really hungry. Lord, please help me be a better person. God like sees the level of your commitment and passion. He's like, yeah, you don't really want to. Lord, please give me wisdom and incredible ability to understand your word. It's like, yeah, you say those words, but I can see you don't really want to. It's all about the me. I think God sees deep how much we really want something. And I believe he meets us there. Anyways, here we see Peter is praying. He's praying at 12 o'clock. That's the Jewish prayer time. Three o'clock's the other time, right? So Cornelius prayed, prayed at three. Peter pray, prays at 12. He's hungry. He's hungry for food. Apparently the Jews ate around 10 or 11. And so Peter is in a situation here that some of us have been in, that's been married for a while, the men, when your wife says she's going to make food and she hasn't, like hour, two hours later. Or when you come on Friday night and we're going to have a barbecue, throw some meat on the grill. We'll throw the meat on at maybe 9 o'clock. We might eat at 12. That's the situation that he's in here. He's hungry. The people who's preparing the food, somehow or another they are delaying. He decides, well, 12 o'clock has come, so I'm just going to have to go pray now while I haven't eaten. I, I mean, if you're supposed to eat between 10 and, and, and 11, then 12 is, is, pretty, is pretty late, especially if you're used to eating that. So he's, he's hungry. And while he's, he's hungry like this, he falls into a trance, the text says. A trance is a state of mind when the, 
when the attention is absorbed in a particular train of thought so that the external senses are partially or entirely suspended. Um, Acts twenty two seventeen says that Paul also fell into such a trance while he was praying at the, at the temple. And I, what does the word trance mean to you? I grew up that it's a type of music. And if you look at those people dance in trance music, it does look like they're not present. Now, let's read further. Verse 11 to 16. So while he's praying, he goes into a trance, and this is what he sees. He saw heaven open, and something like a large sheet being laid down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So the sheet comes down from heaven, and there's a bunch of different animals running around on this, this sheet. And the voice from heaven says, kill and eat. And I hope you guys know what that refers to. It refers to Leviticus chapter 11, where there were certain animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. And now, Peter receives a message and a vision from heaven that he can eat any of those animals. What do you think the message is? What God previously saw as unclean, he has now made clean. That God had previously rejected Gentiles, he now accepts them. And he accepts their ways. The sheet comes down from heaven. Why? Why didn't it come out of the earth? Well, because the gospel, being there for all the nations, was a gift straight from heaven. The voice from heaven is from God. God was saying that he had made these things clean, that his whole life he had thought was, was unclean. It was a message to Peter. Well, verse 17 to 20. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. How do you think they found Simon's house? <laughs> Must have been the smell. Did I go to stinky guy's house? They called out asking if Simon was known as Peter was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. While he was still contemplating the meaning, because he just had this vision, these animals and the sheet and the voice, I mean, you would probably also, I would also, it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? It's interesting for me that while he was contemplating what it means that God answered him practically. Practically. He heard the voices. God doesn't explain himself here, if you see in the text. It, it's not like God says to him, okay, I gave you the vision. Let's sit down quickly and let me explain to you. Let me give you a lecture on it quickly. So this is what it means. The Gentiles, I'm not going to accept them. 
right? I'm, I'm just going to accept the Gentiles. I'm no longer going to hold it against them. The clean food, uh, you know, the unclean food, that's just all symbolism to, to make the point that the gospel is for all people. He doesn't do that. He leaves Peter wondering. And why? I don't know. I'll leave that for you to think about. But it's interesting for me that he doesn't give an explanation because sometimes you and me, we, we want an explanation. And we want to understand it now. And it's interesting what, what, he, what he tells Peter to do. He says to him, get up and just go. And do not hesitate. And I think that's so important because that's all God requires of us. Sometimes we must stop trying to understand everything and just do what he says. Just do it. It's like, it's like sometimes we, 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 we operate like, well, when I understand it, then I'm going to start doing it. It doesn't work like that in God's kingdom. If you want to know something is good, do it. If God says it's good, you're going to have to go try it. Just do what he says. So he simply calls him into action through people and circumstances, through that inner voice. And we have to listen to that inner voice when we are praying or contemplating God's word. And here's the key thing. When we pray and when we read God's word, here's the key question that we need to ask ourselves. This is key, key, key. And if you, if you throw this question in the front of your mind as you deal with text or you deal with God, this is it. What must I do? Just focus on that. It changes everything in terms of how you read the Bible. It changes your prayer life. If you go to God and you say, Lord, what must I do? Immediately it opens you up to be available for Him. Because to get yourself to so say those words, you have to be available. If you go to the text and you say, Lord, I'm going to read your Bible now. I want you to show me in the text what must I do. How are you going to read it now? You're going to read it that way. You're going to look for something that's going to set you into action. We need to be Christians who go, who do. So, I like that. That's one thing that stood out for me in the text. Verse 21. Um, to 23. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Do you see there that he was respected by the Jewish people? And I can imagine that in my own mind. I can imagine that he wasn't a Jew. But he, he showed favor towards the Jews. And therefore they respected him. And he probably went to go pray at the gate outside the temple at the appointed prayer times. And that's enough to earn the respect of a Jew, right? But he wasn't a convert yet. This is huge, ladies and gentlemen. This is a simple text that we just read and it's sort of part of the book of Acts. But this is humongous. If you were a first century Jew and you read this, it would blow your mind. If this was read by a Jew like three years before this, it would, and here's why. Because Peter is being invited to preach the gospel to a Roman captain in the Roman army. This is the first time that we read of something like this. He's going to preach the gospel to a Roman captain in a Roman army. 
My grandfather preached in Swaziland, and the preachers, all the preachers of the kingdom, it's a kingdom, Swaziland's the kingdom, and my grandfather was the, the running the Bible college, and the, um, you could, once a year, the king would allow all the preachers from different churches to come and preach to him. And when he waves his hand, then it means the end of your preaching, he's had enough of you. And my grandfather had an opportunity, he preached four hours to this guy. What an honor it is to teach somebody the gospel in that context, with that political tension. It's very similar to this. These guys say, we invite you to come tell our um, Roman captain, to whatever it is that you, you have to say. What an open invitation. We have been sent by an angel. Once again, it isn't that we are here by our own will or personal gain. We are here because an angel of heaven uh, orchestrated this. And you know what I find so interesting? Peter invites them in. Into what? The stinky house. Come in, guys. Let's have lunch. Oh, man. I don't know if I want to go in there. Simon's house. Jews never came into Simon's house. But Gentiles had no problem going there. Why? Because they didn't have those restrictions. Who would you rather be at this point in time, a Roman or a Jew? The one that's free or the one that's bound? Simon's house becomes the middle ground, doesn't it? That's why I believe Simon's house, because he is a Jew. Simon is a Jew, but he's unclean. His own people don't even like him. But yet he's good enough for the Romans. His house becomes a middle ground. His house symbolizes middle ground between Jew and Gentile. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for pointing out the story for us like that. He invites them in. So what, what do I see here? Let me just pause for a moment and hear what you think. I've been talking so much now. My throat is sore. Yes, brother. Sure. And, and, and the cool exercise for us to do is to ask ourselves the, questions, uh, the question, are there similar people in our town? People who are not atheist and people who are not Christian, but they somehow fear God. Yes, brother. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And God probably listened to that guy's prayer too. Yeah. All right, anybody else? All right. Uh, just some thoughts from me. And you know these things at the end, these are just my opinions. Um, but I, you know, what I saw, you know, we see here how Jesus is beginning to conquer the greatest empire on earth. This is the beginning of it. He's... We said in the beginning that's what he's going to do. 
My first lesson in the book of Acts was, I think, the imperial ambitions of Christ. Jesus wanted to take over the whole world, and he's, he's doing it here. And this is early on. We know that 300 years later, the whole Roman Empire was basically Christian. Um, so, Christian imperialism at its best, it defies borders, politics, race, and boundaries. This is how Jesus penetrates. The second thing is this. The house of the rejected becomes the catalyst location for Gentiles and Jews to come under one God. Absolutely beautiful. Simon the Tanner was probably a nobody and a nothing in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the Jews, he was probably a reject. But God accepted him and used his house as a noble place. And I want to ask you, and I, I try to do this as often as I can, that when you go visit people, before you leave their house, pray for that house. That God will use that as a residence that will bless people who come in there. Pray for that house. Simon, I think he was so excited. For the first time, he's got some guests. Wow, exciting. Sorry about the smell, guys, but welcome. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5 verse 14. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet, who you are, what name you have, where you were born. If you ask anything in accordance with his will, God will hear you. What is his will? For you to know him. Have a relationship with him. So of course, he will hear you. God heard the prayer of a Roman soldier. This might sound simple to us. But to a Jew, that was unheard of. God, Yahweh, listen to a guy who's not circumcised? I don't know about that. How can God listen to a soldier that's oppressing God's people? That's part of the system that's oppressing God's people. God answers the prayers of whoever He wishes. And sometimes He listens to the people we don't listen to better than we do. It's something that played over and over through my mind about our dear brother that, um, that is blind. I had a, a call from this gentleman this week. He's blind. He's got a very small income. He's been a traveling preacher his whole life. I think that's pretty incredible to be able to preach the word without being able to read it. He listens to it. He memorizes it. And then he preaches it. And you know, I, I was hesitant when he phoned and said, look, can you please take me to the dentist? His wife is ill. She can't drive him, and obviously he can't drive. And I, I spent the, the day with him. The first thing that came through my mind when he, when he phoned is, is probably this is some type of hoax or somebody that wants to just use me. But I had to break myself for a moment and just be very careful. Maybe God listens more to this guy than I do. Because I could say no to him right now, but does God really say no to him? It sort of just shook me. So, so I thought, who am I to reject his request? Jesus says, do not turn away from the, the one who's asking of you. So how could I do that? So I thank God for people like that. And we've got to be careful in our daily lives that we, um, we don't reject the requests that God would accept. Um. The other thing that I picked up is that hungry prayer will be answered from heaven. Um, it seems to be the case in the Bible often. 
uh, when people pray, God hears. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. And I spoke this morning how I've experienced that. I'm sure that you have as well. That when we are hungry in our prayer, God hears it. It is deeply noble to learn to view people through the eyes of heaven and not the eyes of self or the eyes of earth. Simon the Tanner, for example, as I've mentioned, I, I, I don't think he was always viewed by people the same way that God viewed him. It's a challenge to calibrate ourselves, to view people the same way as God does. I mean, even a, even a challenge that I have with this, this gentleman this, this week, I mean, I heard report, negative reports about this gentleman. Now I've got to ask myself the question, are these reports about people of this gentleman the same as God's report of him? Does God view this man the same as people do? Because people don't like it when people ask them for stuff. And so they start looking at this guy negatively. Maybe the guy really needs help. How do we, how do we determine that? So we don't know where people are on their journey. We should just love all people and be open to all people to ensure that we do what is right according to God's will. And lastly, it is possible to love religion and not God at the same time. This was Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees, wasn't it? In vain they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The whole of Matthew 23 is about their religiosity, but their distance from God. And this was possibly a problem that Cornelius faced. If I want a relationship with God, must I embrace the Jewish religion? That's maybe what he wrestled with. Why does it have to be so difficult? It doesn't have to be. And it's like sort of in the, and maybe that's what he prayed about. Father of heaven, I want to serve you, but it's so complicated with being a Roman soldier. And God's like, hey, dude, don't worry. Here's a vision. I'm going to send you somebody from Joppa. I'm going to send him, get him quickly. There's actually another way out. There's a middle way. And you know what's interesting about God? I don't know if you've seen it, but you know how many times in my life I've found a middle way through Christ? It doesn't have to be A or B. Isn't that what we see with Solomon and the two women with the baby who died? Like Solomon's like, wise, I'll throw a middle way in here and I'll reveal quickly what the issue is. And sometimes, and maybe tonight you are, you are sitting in the middle of a dichotomy. You have an A or a B and you don't know what to do. Maybe there's a middle. Maybe you haven't prayed enough. Maybe there's another answer. It's beautiful. God comes into the picture as we'll see next week. And God says to Cornelius, no, my friend, all you need is just Jesus. You don't need religion. You just need a person. Jesus Christ. 